Before we move on with this episode of the Scene in the Unseen, do check out another awesome podcast from IVM Podcast, Cyrus Says, hosted by my old buddy Cyrus Brocha. What makes people behave? It's comforting to think that each of us has a set of moral codes by which we live, our own sense of what is right and what is wrong. But the truth is that more than being driven by some internal moral compass, we are creatures who respond to incentives. That is why Indians who don't think twice before dropping an empty packet of cigarettes on a road in Bombay will never dare to do that in Singapore. That is why Indians who stand in orderly queues in foreign countries will enter a stampede when there is a queue anywhere in India. It's not that they have an opinion about whether littering is right or wrong or queuing is right or wrong. They're just responding to separate sets of incentives in separate places. And here's the thing. This applies to the Me Too movement as well. It's clear that for centuries men have been getting away with atrocious behavior just because they can. Well now social norms are shifting and they can no longer get away with so much. If they behave better now though, it does not mean that they are necessarily better human beings, but just that the incentives for their behavior have changed. Welcome to the seen and the unseen. Our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Scene and the Unseen. My topic for today is criminal economics, and is sparked by something my good friend and frequent guest on this show, Shruti Rajgopalan, wrote in an article in Mint after the Me Too movement broke here. I had an editorial out in Pragati the same day, and I made the same point as her that the incentives for male behavior have now changed, and that means that going forward, men will behave a lot better. Now, my argument came more from common sense, but hers came from a deep grounding. in a field called criminal economics and she cited the insights of the nobel prize winning economist gary becker in her piece so i figured i really need to chat more with her about this and i invited her back onto the show but before i begin my conversation with shruti let's take a quick commercial break like me are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls well worry no more head on over to indiancolors.com Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vasvo Xvasvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to indiancolors.com. That's colors with an o u. And if you want a 20% discount, apply the code IVM20. That's IVM for IVM Podcast. IVM20 for a 20% discount at IndianColors.com. Hey, Shruti, welcome to the Scene and the Unseen. Hi, Amit. It's great to be here again. So, Shruti, I was fascinated by your piece in uh, Mint, where you so clearly explained why and how the incentives for men will change. Can you just kind of take us over that a little bit? Uh, so, Amit, as you know, and maybe a lot of your listeners know by now, I'm an economist by training, and one of the first few things we teach in economics, you know, in the principles class or as an introduction, is incentives matter. 
right? And that incentives matter in every aspect of life. And what do we mean by incentives? Uh, simply that most people view the options presented before them and they try to maximize their own well-being, right? So if there are two or three different options, they will pick the option that is best for them. And by best for them, we, we mean those alternatives which present the maximum benefit, the maximum net benefit or the minimum cost. Now, how do we think about this in terms of non-market behavior? That is what Gary Brecker really brought to economics. He was awarded his Nobel Prize in 1992 for using economic analysis and non-market behavior. So we understand that when you go to buy apples, that you might choose the best apple that maximizes your well-being among the alternative set of fruits. But what about when it comes to crime, right? Are criminals really engaging in this kind of rational cost-benefit analysis where they choose among the alternatives? Or are criminals just crazy, uh, you know, animal spirit, lustful creatures who just do whatever it is they want without any rational thought going into it whatsoever? So this is what Gary Becker tried to figure out. The way Gary Becker came to this insight was actually quite interesting. Uh, he was on a doctoral dissertation committee for an economic student at Columbia. And he was driving around the block of the university trying to find parking, which can be quite difficult in New York. And he was running terribly late. So he did some quick calculations in his head. He compared the cost of actually putting his car in a private parking garage, which can be quite expensive in New York, versus the penalty of uh, parking illegally. Except he didn't just calculate the penalty of parking illegally, but the expectation of what he would actually have to pay which is the penalty of parking illegally times the probability of getting caught. He thought that getting caught in the next hour or so for illegal parking was a very low probability event. And even though parking fines can run high in New York, he thought it would still end up being cheaper than putting the car in a private garage. So he just parked illegally and ran into the doctoral dissertation defense. And uh, the happy ending to the story is he actually didn't get a parking fine. And the even happier ending is he actually started writing about this. And he basically started a field called the economic analysis of crime, uh, one of the many areas for which he won his Nobel Prize. Now, Gary Becker's example is fairly simple. We've all made some kind of an error in figuring out, you know, how we reach somewhere on time. We've all faced the problem of not being able to find parking. I'm sure we've all dodged a few parking fines. But what Gary Becker was telling us was this is true even for the more serious crimes. You basically look at what your expected cost of an illegal action will be. And the expected cost is the actual penalty, which is usually jail time for serious crimes, times the probability of actually being convicted. Right. So let's say uh, the actual penalty for a particular crime is 10 years in jail, but the probability of getting convicted is only 10 percent. So your expected cost or your expected punishment is actually only one year in jail. If you can improve the conviction rates or the probability of getting convicted to say 40 percent, right, Immediately, the expected cost of the punishment increases to four years in prison. So when you mentioned in your introduction that people are very uh, trigger happy 
to toss garbage or litter on the streets of Mumbai, but they never do it in Singapore. That's because there's really virtually no cost for that action in Mumbai. Whereas in Singapore, you could potentially face a penalty. So you might be willing to litter at zero or very close to zero cost, but you're not willing to litter for, say, a $40 fine, the expected probability of a $40 fine. And that's really what changes things. So one way to correct criminal behavior, according to Gary Becker, is in one sense to impose appropriate punishments, but also you could fix that problem by the other part of the equation, which is improving the chances of getting caught. Let me kind of summarize it. I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense uh, in poker terms. For example, we often talk about the expected value of an action. Uh, so just to go over the parking example, let's say Gary Baker is circling the block and he wants to park and a private parking will cost him $100 and the fine for illegal parking is $1,000, but he'll be caught only 1 in 20 times. Now, because he'll be caught only 1 in 20 times, that means it's $1,000 divided by 20, which is $50, which is a lower cost to pay than the private parking, which is $100. So uh, in poker playing terms, you'd argue that the EV or the expected value of parking illegally is actually plus $50 and therefore he should park illegally. Now, the point you're making is that in this example, there are two ways for to make sure that he doesn't park illegally. One way is you increase the fine. So if the fine is $10,000 instead of $1,000, then his expected cost, if he gets caught a one in uh, 20 times, is $500 instead of 50, which is much more than the $100 that a private parking would cost. The other way is if you keep the fine the same, but he's caught, say, 30% of the time, then again, uh, you know, the uh, instead of one in 20 times, and the cost goes up to $300. And that again is more expensive than the private parking. So the two ways you typically handle this is make the punishment more severe or make the probability for getting caught uh, higher. And, and, and the thing that I should point out, uh, which I know a lot of listeners, it must come to their mind is that, hey, they'll be thinking like no criminal actually uh, calculates these costs per se. But even if you don't explicitly think about costs and benefits and expected value, uh, you still have an um, instinctive sense of it, which is why when you're at an airport in India, you know, you'll queue up in a very disorderly way, but you'll do a completely different thing at Heathrow. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Amit, you're absolutely right. So your poker example is an amazing example. Of course, poker players are notorious for being very precise calculators of uh, different probabilities in a particular game. Uh, in the real world, people are, one, not so good at figuring that out. And two, there's a lot of uncertainty. So they might not have that kind of precision. But there is some sense of what is the expected consequence of an action. There is some expectation that is formed. Whether it is correct, whether it's incorrect, whether it's very precise or imprecise doesn't matter. But all individuals take decisions based on some kind of expectation of what the consequences will be. And the less sophisticated insight from Gary Becker is just that. What are the expectations set up by society for any particular action, criminal or non-criminal? And in the context of the Me Too movement, right, uh, it's not just about the criminal punishment, but it's also about what else is going on in society that may impose certain costs on an individual. 
So, you know, coming back to the Me Too movement, I kind of made a list of all the costs that might deter men from committing uh, not just sexual crimes, but of uh, actually getting into the kind of sexist behavior, which we are now beginning to agree, thankfully, is wrong. And I found four categories. So just tell me across these four categories, how the incentives are shifting. Number one, uh, in legal terms, punishments have typically been small for sexual harassment. Number two, state capacity to actually catch people and, uh, you know, take them through the process of justice, uh, that state capacity is low. Number three, the cost for women complaining is very high because very so few women complain that typically women are afraid that if they complain, they'll be ostracized and their careers might end, as we've seen in some fields. And uh, the fourth is that even social sanction is low for a lot of sexist behavior. Earlier, it was so normalized that people would say, oh, that guy isn't harassing. He's just flirting, you know, and so on. Um, and it seems to me that across all these four parameters, uh, incentives have changed. Yes. Well, uh, not across all of them equally, but let's start with the legal situation, right? Um, very often we read that rape is underpunished in India or the punishments aren't that severe and that's simply not true. So it's not that the legal punishment in the Indian Penal Code is low, right? It's pretty standard. The punishment for rape in India starts at seven years. There are some exceptions uh, which are built in and for the more severe cases, such as the rape of a minor, anyone below 12 years, uh, gang rapes, etc., the minimum punishment starts at 10 and then can extend to a lifetime. So I don't think the problem is that the punishment is too few years in prison. India holds up reasonably well in terms of punishments with the other Commonwealth countries. The problem really is the conviction rate in this particular instance. I don't see how this fact can go unnoticed when it is so well-known and well-established in India that even the crimes that are reported, and there is under-reporting, but even the crimes that are reported have very, very low conviction rates. So I think the conviction rates for the average conviction rate across all crimes in the Indian Penal Code is something like 30%, which is not very high. And that for rape is about 20%. Right. One in five cases that actually gets reported gets convicted. That's an incredibly low rate. And we know that most of the cases don't even get reported. So Pramit Bhattacharya in Mint using uh, the National Health Survey data found that 99.1% of sexual assault, not just rape, but all sexual assault goes unreported in India. Right. This is an incredible number. So women are reporting only about 1% of all sexual assault faced to any kind of, you know, official state machinery. If you exclude marital rape, right, or any sexual violence and sexual assault by the husband, the number that is reported goes up to about 15%. So women are willing to report 15% of the cases of sexual assault committed by anyone other than their husband. Even that seems incredibly low, right? Let's think about the incentives of the perpetrator and the incentives of the victim. If you have only one in a hundred chance of getting reported for committing a crime against your wife, right? And then there is a further 20% chance that you will actually get convicted. That's an incredibly low rate, 
And obviously, for a monster like the person we just described, there is some benefit arising out of sexual assault, right? In that moment, there must be some sexual gratification or some benefit from oppressing the spouse or enforcing the maleness or the patriarchy. And so the benefits are immediate. The benefits are much larger. The costs are uncertain far in the future and may not materialize. And if they materialize, they're very, very small. In fact, he's likely to underestimate the costs the longer the marriage goes on simply because of the availability heuristic where if she hasn't complained so far, it will seem that she's not going to complain anymore. Yes. And also uh, from the perspective of the victim, if she doesn't complain for the first six years, people will be like, why are you speaking up now? Right. Which is what is happening with a lot of the women in the Me Too movement, right? So Indian society, at least on Twitter, what I'm reading, likes to pretend like it is such a safe environment for women that we are now scolding women for not opening their mouth at the first instance of sexual harassment, right? Whereas we know that the reporting structure is just so difficult to navigate. So now let me talk about the incentives of the victim, right? Uh, and this is where the patriarchy is so important to understand and study. We, most police stations are populated mostly by men, right? When you have to report a sexual assault, you're basically going to a man who may not be as sympathetic or may not understand your point of view, right? Second, we don't have any special cells for victims of sexual assault or children or anything like that. So whether your window got broken or your car got stolen or you got raped, you're basically going to the same place and the same procedural reporting, which seems quite bizarre because sexual assault is a deeply personal and traumatic event. Third, even though we have both laws and social norms about protecting the identity of the victim, that's usually only about your name in the newspaper, right? Everyone else in your neighborhood, in your school, at your parents' workplace, your extended family, everyone knows that you were the victim of sexual assault. And in India, all the honor and the virtue of a family is in the woman and her virginity and her sexual purity, which means that even if you have done nothing wrong and you're the victim of sexual assault, you have immediately brought shame upon the family. So there's this additional cost imposed on the victim and the victim's family in addition to the trauma of sexual assault that if you speak about it, there is a lot of shame. You immediately see people distancing themselves socially from the victims and their families. There's the addition problem that no one will marry the girl later. In fact, there are cases in India where Kap Panchayats recommend that the remedy for a rapist, that the rapist marries the victim because no one else will marry her, right? That is how deep-seated these problems run. So now add all these things, then add the fact that the conviction rate is extremely low and the process of going through this to get the conviction is extremely traumatic on everyone you basically have no incentive to report and actually go through the criminal justice system to actually get justice, which means that with each successive generation of this problem, you're going to get lower and lower conviction rates. Conviction rates have dropped since the 70s. One explanation is state capacity and pendency in courts and things like that. The other is just simply the social system. The social system is not 
very well equipped to deal with women and victims of sexual assault. And it has all the problems of the same patriarchy as the real world. Right. So the criminal justice system doesn't operate in a particular vacuum. You have judges saying all sorts of things. You have so often I have heard this from friends of mine, first person accounts. Someone groped them at a university or a bus. They show up at the police station and the police say, Madam, why are you putting yourself and your family through this? It was a small thing. Nothing bad happened to you. Just let it go because the moment I file a report, your life is going to be hell. So you very often have well-meaning police officers who discourage women from reporting and actually going through the process of a trial, right? You report these things uh, post-Vishakha, right? Everyone thought the workplace will be a magically new thing. When women report these things at a workplace, routinely, right? This has happened so often. It's even happened to me. People will say things like, why do you want to report something so small? After all, nothing happened, right? As if the only bad thing that can happen to a woman is rape. And anything less than rape simply is not worthwhile being reported. Why? Because it's simply too much hassle. It could ruin the victim's name. It could ruin the reputation of the workplace or that particular firm. And it could ruin the career of such an important man, right? So no matter where we are across the board, criminal justice system, internal committee hearings, even complaining to your own family, the reporting is just so rampantly low across the board. It's sort of shocking. And now what we found is most of the rapes of all the rapes. Now I'm only talking rapes, not sexual assault. Sure, sure. Four in 10 rapes are committed on minors. Okay, which itself is so shameful and shocking, like that's not even part of the Me Too movement. That's this whole other problem we need to deal with right now. But 94% of the rapes are committed by someone known to the victim. It is usually a member of the immediate or the extended family or the neighborhood. And 94% of the perpetrators are known to the victim. Only 6% are completely unknown. And, that's and really... I'm not talking boyfriends, right? Yeah. I'm talking school teacher, grandparent, uncle, next door neighbor. This is like the immediate close community. It's really shocking. And that's where the power imbalance is the greatest. Because if you're a minor, you're the least powerful. And uh, if the person uh, molesting you is um, or raping you is, uh, you know, your school teacher or your uncle or whatever, you know, they're in the position of power. It's opportunity meets uh, power imbalance. And, you know, I mean, it's a very dismal picture as far as serious sexual assaults and rapes are concerned. Like you said that, you know, men can get away with impunity because A, the costs of reporting on women are very high, both socially and in terms of what the legal system will put them through, which women have described as a second rape in some cases. Two, the conviction rates are uh, so low, even after the extremely low reporting rate that they might as well not exist. And this situation perpetuates itself in the kind of smaller context of what your piece was about and of me too, which is not about this deeper, larger problem, which is, you know, makes both of us despair. And, uh, you know, we'll come back to it later. But just in the context of me too, it seems that there has been a shift or maybe I'm mistaken and it's just in elite circles like ours where women are finding validation in the fact that other women are speaking up 
and therefore they are more likely to speak up themselves and that has caused a change in the amount of social sanction that a harasser has to then face and this changes the incentives more towards um, you know men actually being uh, punished for their behavior yeah so let me break that up into little bits so the first part about solidarity with other women and the victims i can't tell you at least in my experience as a woman i have no experience in any other gender just how incredibly important that is so i went to an all girls school my closest friends from my childhood were mostly women and there's like this deep sisterhood between all of us uh, of my six or seven first cousins there's only one male first cousins all the others are sisters uh, i'm sort of surrounded by this sort of like female solidarity but it's not just about the immediate family um you've obviously never traveled in a, a all women's compartment so let me just explain the dynamics of that so if you travel in the bombay local train or the delhi metro there is one or two compartments which is just reserved for women right and you should see the kind of sisterhood when you enter a compartment like that especially the delhi metro all the compartments are connected they're seamless there'll always be like some of these roadside romeo types who will be standing at the edge leering into the women's compartment and they will try and inch and make their way into the women's compartment and some auntie or young lady will literally take out her chappal right and she will fling her shoe at him or like sort of point her shoe at him and ask him to get out of the ladies compartment it's really difficult to do that alone if you're alone in a parking lot or something with a with a potential sexual predator there is so much solidarity when you are 200 women standing in a compartment and the moment you do that you're the brave person to take that action 20 women will say oh thank you auntie thank you didi thank you for doing that that guy made me so uncomfortable so i think i mean society in general underestimates the value of this kind of solidarity and men just simply don't understand it because i've been having this conversation with the men in my life and we're slowly realizing that men and women inhabit quite different uh social worlds even when we're in the exact same physical space right for women one of the biggest um sort of deterrence of speaking up is what if i speak up and either they don't believe me or they blame me right which is much worse than just not speaking up at all because then you only have to live with trauma one which is the trauma of the original sexual assault right trauma two trauma three all of those things don't come up i've been looking at the twitter comments on the pages of all these incredibly brave women who've spoken up in the me too movement and it's so shocking so many times people are like but why were you working late why did you go alone to the hotel room is that an appropriate question to ask right it shouldn't matter why can't i work late right if i get invited to a hotel lobby or a hotel room why is it such a terrible expectation that i walk out you know just untouched or unmolested so we've sort of turned it on the head so much so there's slut shaming there is victim shaming and now there's a new kind of shaming i call it like the prudence shaming right this is all imprudent behavior watching a movie late at night is not prudent right going anywhere 
where you don't have subtle seven other close people with you is imprudent. If you always knew that the editor in your office was a Rangile Mizaj K, then why did you go cl- so close to him? That was imprudent. It's your fault. You should have known, right? This is just such an extraordinarily large problem that we face on a daily basis. And it's everywhere. It's our parents. It's our teachers, right? You go out somewhere and you say that, you know, I was molested in a bus or I was like groped or leered at. And people are like, where's your dupatta? That's the first thing they ask you. As if it's not a dupatta, but like a gun which would have protected you against some kind of molestation, right? So they always... And when I say they, I don't just mean men. I mean men and women and of every generation. It's always turned on its head and the women are asked, why did you put yourself in this situation? And let me explain what the situation is. The situation is every situation. Why did you go to work? Why did you travel in public transport? Right? Why did you stay 20 minutes extra after? Why were you in a situation where you were alone in an elevator or a room or a conference room with another person who happens to be a man? Every situation is the fault of the victim. So what ends up happening for women is this additional pressure of prudence. And the standard for this prudent behavior keeps changing every day. Right? Earlier, it was just don't go to a very scary, dark place alone, late at night, something that's unfamiliar, like a jungle or something. And now I'll tell you what happened to me last time. I was coming back on the Noida toll road. And my driver um, uh, lowered the window to pay the toll. And there was some problem over the amount of change calculated. Okay. So after about two minutes of them arguing with each other, I lowered my window. And the driver just freaked out. Like he just freaked out, turned around and said, Bailey, window ban karo. And you're asking what happened. And he's like, you don't know who's there with him next to him in the toll booth. We've just stopped in the middle of the road late in the evening and anyone could enter the car or molest you through the window, right? So now lowering your window at a signal is imprudent behavior. Everything is imprudent behavior. So in this kind of world, there's the additional burden of the moment a victim speaks up, you're so worried that 20 people are going to blame you for doing something that is perfectly ordinary had nothing happened and is perfectly ordinary for a man, but is really ridiculously poor judgment on your part for engaging in that because you got molested and therefore it must be your fault. So sorry for the long winded answer. No, I but mean, this social solidarity part is so important in the Me Too movement. So I, I, I have like two speculations here and, and one is that perhaps, you know, what you point out about the solidarity being so important to women. And, um, you know, my previous guest in the Me Too episode that I did a couple of weeks ago, Nikita Saxena, was making the same point about how all the women are checking in with each other and so on. And um, it seems to me that the reason that that solidarity may be such a big deal with women while men don't really care about it is that women just need it more. Because men uh, uh, don't carry the burden of their maleness around everywhere. While, uh, you know, women in, in the patriarchal system, as you correctly say, it's a factor in every single thing that you do. And therefore, they need that support. And therefore, they feel that empathy for other women and they tend to band together. Uh, my but there's an additional part, Amit. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Sure, I sure. mean, there's a part of needing it more. But there's also a part of the women just get it. Yeah, of course. Every woman I know has been groped, has been leered at, has had some bad experience at the workplace or public transport or anywhere not amounting to rape, 
but has had a bad experience. Every single woman, I don't know any woman, and I come from a very privileged and protected circle, but I literally don't know anyone who has not had a bad experience. So I think the most important part of this is just knowledge and recognition. Women will instantly get it. The men instantly don't get it. There's that additional barrier. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's absolutely true that most men are oblivious, and it's also true that just the same way that all women have been groped. I think it's fairly true that all men have been guilty of casual sexism at some, at least casual sexism at some point or the other, and women. without even recognizing it as uh, sexism. I'm sure I am guilty of casual sexism, in the sense that at least being complicit in it, right? Because if you face a really terrible boss, right? someone who makes lewd remarks or someone who is just not nice to women and creates a terrible working environment. I have been in such environments and my attitude has been wear your big girl pants and toughen up, right? So we are complicit in this behavior because we think that if we are stronger and just get through it, it will be okay, right? The onus is again on me. It's my job to toughen up. It is my job to rough it out. And the more often I have done it and not called out someone for their behavior, the more complicit I am in allowing this to happen, right? Because I never made an effort to change the other person's behavior. I always made the effort to change my own. I got on a bus and immediately put my backpack in the front, right? I go somewhere where I'm uncertain of what's going on. I immediately wear a dupatta. So we are all part of what is going on, both in terms of the signals we sent and in terms of just being complicit and not calling out every person for their sexism. The other thing, frankly, Amit, is it's just exhausting. You go to a party, anytime I bring up any feminist-related issue, you are immediately the party pooper who likes to talk about serious things, right? Or you're immediately the party pooper who calls out the men and takes everything they say too seriously. Right? Like that's... He didn't mean it. So we are all complicit. I don't think this is a burden just on men. I think all men and women, we have all to some extent been complicit in this rampant sexism because we just haven't made the effort to call it out. Uh, so Shruti, I have a question for you following up from this. But before we go to that question, let's take a quick commercial break. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another week on IVM Podcast. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. Please, please, please. We're IVM Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This week on Cyrus Says, Cyrus talks to business advisor and sommelier Cecilia Oldene. Cyrus learns some wine etiquette and they do a wine tasting on the podcast. Vartalab is back with a brand new season. Akash and Naveen sit down with producer Janam to recap some of their favorite moments from season one and give you a glimpse of some of the fun new conversations they have in store for season two. On the Prakriti Podcast, Pawan and China expert Manoj Kewal Ramani dispel major myths about China and the Chinese government. On Pesa Vesa, we have a festive special episode with Hansi Merotra who gives some truly valuable advice on how to make better financial decisions. On the latest episode of Cross Tales, tune into the last two parts of Story 9 featuring a bully, a coward and a girl with a neat twist. And guys, remember, we need you to spread the word about podcasting. It's one of the most important things you can do to help us out. Let your friends know if there's a podcast episode that you like, that you think that they would like. Please, please, please do spread the word. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. My guest today is Shruti Rajgopalan, and we're talking about criminal economics and how incentives change, uh, particularly in context of a column that she wrote uh, about criminal economics in the context of Me Too. So my question for you 
Shruti is that one you pointed out how both men and women are oblivious of their sexism and tend to minimize the suffering of women and two you pointed out more disturbingly how uh, the culture of victim blaming is rampant to the extent that someone can even ask you ki aapne apne car ka khirki niche kyu kiya so my question to you is and, and maybe this is selection bias playing because i've been so engrossed in what's happening um, uh, on social media and me too but which is in really elite english speaking circles like the one i inhabit so maybe i'm being too optimistic here but do you think that some of this is changing now because of the me too movement that did you know like from what little i have noticed in my limited circles that now it is far more likely that when anybody resorts to victim blaming that he is likely to be shouted down by 10 people both men and women um and and that there's a little less of the minimizing i mean you won't find so many people saying any more why did it take you so many years to speak out so yes so you're right that the me too movement has definitely changed the incentives in particular the costs of reporting right and they go back to the topics we've just been talking about which is solidarity and victim shaming so the me too movement i mean most people are saying this is just an urban thing but you know on the other side there are all these google maps floating around where the me too movement is being uh, quite uniformly across india being googled in the last few years there's a gorgeous map where india just lights up like it's on fire uh while googling the me too movement so people are definitely paying attention people are looking at what it is and the wonderful thing about social media is that it reduces two three different kinds of costs so one is the cost of reporting on social media is much lower right than going to a police station writing an fir and dealing with the whole thing and then a newspaper may or may not cover it social media you have a much more direct and wide range reach the second cost that has lowered is coordination right one of the things that has come up about this mj akbar story is he's a serial sexual predator apparently everyone knew about it but no one talked about it and nor were the victims ever in a position to coordinate and compare notes right and now when social media has helped them coordinate with each other i don't know if you've read these accounts they all sound so eerily similar it's like the same thing happened over and over and over again and the victims have changed and the victims just never knew each other and weren't in a position to get together right because coordination costs in the real world are very high so the me too movement has also reduced coordination costs third the me too movement has reduced the costs of impartial third parties to participate in a low cost way right so a retweet is extremely low cost but if thousands of us retweet what's been happening with one of these serial sexual predators immediately you bring more attention and retweet is much lower cost than raising the conversation at the dinner table or the workplace or you know at a political rally or something like that but it also manages to spread a lot of information so the cost for third parties to participate and provide solidarity provide publicity have reduced now because the first three costs have reduced for the victims and the third party or impartial spectators now the costs have increased for the perpetrators right because immediately earlier when a woman would tell a story either people around her would shush her and tell her not to tell anybody right or even if she made an effort to reach out and tell a few people it's a few people now you are being shamed 
on social media being retweeted thousands of times. It gets picked up by mainstream press, right? People at your workplace and your families and your children are going to hear about it. So suddenly the costs of being a sexual perpetrator are mounting. And there's the additional aspect of social trust, right? I mean, there's still a lot of victim blaming and things like that and not believing victims' first-person accounts. But we found that usually some of the very bogus claims have been immediately rejected, right? We know of one or two instances like this where an account was created yesterday and they made like a random allegation against someone and no one really believed it and blew it up. Whereas the people who we always knew were sexual predators as a society, there are multiple accounts, people now genuinely believe them. Mainstream media is actually using social media accounts and publishing it in newspapers, right? As if 100 people retweeting is the fact check for this particular case. So those are some really wonderful things. And this kind of social exposure will definitely impose greater costs. The other part of the internet is it doesn't forget. So the costs are very long term. Anytime anyone Googles MJ Akbar's name or Sajid Khan's name from now until eternity, this stuff is going to pop up. So you can't, it's not as fickle as memory of regular people and society. And all of this, in fact, is illustrated by what just happened to MJ Akbar. I should point out that we are recording this on October 18th and it'll probably, uh, the episode will broadcast 10 days from now. But as of 18th, uh, you know, uh, yesterday MJ Akbar resigned. And I think initially he refused to resign and he filed a criminal defamation case against uh, Priya Ramani because he must have made the assumption that, oh, it's just one person and I will intimidate her and there'll be a chilling effect. I mean, there were a bunch of people at the time, but he thought that's where it ends. But instead, uh, he... Uh, fell for what is called the Barbara Streisand effect, that if you try to, uh, you know, stop something from happening on social media, you only end up amplifying it. And what basically happened was that the moment he filed the case on Priya, a whole bunch of other women uh, came forward and said, look, either the same thing happened to them or they were witnesses to it and they were going to stand by her side. And this included some really senior uh, formidable women, as, as Priya herself is, it included people like Minal Baghel and uh, Tushita Patel. And you don't mess with those people. And Akbar eventually got the memo and he had to uh, uh, step down and at the time of recording we don't know what will happen to the case but what again happened there was that after the first person had the courage to put her story forward there were all these other women who realized that yes this is a pattern and yes I am validated and it's not just me and I can also speak up now and that led to a cascade of people speaking up which made it something unstoppable and just seeing this pattern of behavior being discussed by multiple credible women was almost more powerful than any kind of evidence you would need. You know, it becomes obvious to anyone who's reading it that yes, this stuff has happened. And not only are women far more likelier to speak up when they see others speaking up, but earlier your social sanction was relatively low. But what we've seen now in this Me Too movement, which gives me so much hope, is that you've had a minister stepping down, you've had a variety of people getting sacked from where they worked. In uh, most cases, before uh, the inquiry against them was even complete, before the due process even played out, these guys just got sacked. And to me, it seems as if that changes the incentives completely. Well, it does and it doesn't. And I'll tell you in what context. So it changes the incentives for certain kinds of perpetrators and certain kinds of victims. So it has definitely changed the game for serial perpetrators, right? 
So anyone who like MJ Akbar or Sajid Khan, like people who just have a reputation for notoriously preying on women one after the other, because, you know, all the credibility that is coming to these stories is the credibility of a large number of women coming together. Right. So one problem is social media is still on a great place to sift out the singular allegation. Right. That single crime because the opportunity presented itself or someone was inebriated or something like that. And social media is not a very good place to sort that out because what ends happening on social media is, oh, this is a he said, she said case. Okay, then. And we only believe cases where it's he said, and then she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said. So this is one particular kind of problem. So I agree with you that for the worst offenders, things have definitely changed. The second is there are not, not every victim is in a position that Priya is in, right? Priya is an incredibly brave woman uh, with, and I, I read her husband's account. It's an incredibly supportive husband and family, quite clearly. Uh, she has a towering reputation within, among journalists and, you know, generally within the media circles. And she has a particular kind of credibility that has been earned over a few decades and that takes time to earn, Right. Uh, when you talk about girls just starting out, you know, the most vulnerable victims, we must remember this happened to Priya 25 years ago. And at that time, no one would have believed the Priya who was 25 years younger. And even today, there are so many people who are just at the start of their career and people simply don't believe them because they don't bring that kind of network credibility that has been earned over a long period of time. And if social credibility is the only way we're going to sift through sexual assault cases, it's unfortunately not a very no, good No, but Shruti, for example, before right? we started recording, sorry to interrupt you, before we started recording, I, I jokingly mentioned to you this place called Happy Creative Agencies or something like that. I think it's an arm of Dentsu where four senior guys have got sacked. And if I'm not mistaken, most of the complaints were from young people about harassment who don't have, who are like the Priya Ramani of 25 years ago would have been. They uh, were also not taking on an MJ Akbar. That's true. Okay. I that's mean, the part I want to explain, right? So, Priya Ramani is a towering presence who can take on a minister in the union government. Now, let's scale that down smaller. What about a woman? What about someone who's a district collector, upper caste male in a village and is preying on lower caste women? How is this going to play out? These women have mobile phones now. The literacy is improving. And because literacy is improving, there is greater reporting of sexual cases in India because they have social media and access to mobile phones and they watch news. They know what's going on in the Me Too movement. But how are they going to use the Me Too movement to expose this guy? It's not so clear to me. By the way, again, I don't want to delegitimize the Me Too movement. I just want to point out that this is not an equal platform for all types of people and it is not an equal platform for all types of offenses. It is a platform where the people who have greatest media exposure are going to have the biggest fall, right? So those sexual predators who are at the highest levels of society and have been hiding in plain sight will have the greatest fall. But there are a lot of sexual predators who are in a position of power that the English-speaking press is not going to report on them or even the vernacular press is not going to report on them because the power structure in that particular society is quite complicated, right? And the victims in that society, people will simply not believe. 
This is another problem with the way the police stations are structured. Police stations have very few lower caste people and virtually no lower caste women working there. And most victims of sexual assault in rural areas are Dalit women, right? So now go back to our conversation about solidarity, support, believability, their credibility in a particular reporting environment. Those women have none of these um, wonderful benefits coming to them, even though they want to be part of the social media Me Too movement, it's not so clear to me that the benefits extend to them, at least not in the same equal way. So, uh, you, you know, before we move on to that subject and move away from the Me Too movement, you know, when it comes to the Me Too movement, we're probably talking past each other uh, and saying the same thing because I, I'm not saying that it's a panacea and it's going to solve everything. I just think that it shifts the probability slightly. It's not that every woman is going to report crimes against her, but it makes it slightly more likely. And obviously, this is much more true in elite circles and circles where women don't have access to social media and technology and so on. Uh, and secondly, to go back to even the earlier point where you made the point that it's something where we'll see the effect for serial predators who have a pattern of behavior and we won't see it so much for uh, what some people call the bad date gone wrong kind of situation. I disagree there again because what happens in some of those smaller cases where men don't recognize boundaries is that there is a tendency among uh, many men when they are dating to ignore a woman's discomfort. Uh, where she doesn't have to say no, but she's uncomfortable, but they will ignore it as, for example, in the Aziz Ansari case, because they just want to get away with as much as they can. And I think the incentives now shift towards them being more cognizant of a woman's discomfort, even when she doesn't overtly say no. And I think that's kind of a good thing. I agree, but I will put in a couple of caveats. Uh, when I talk to women, especially those who've been talking about, you know, bad experiences, when you ask them why you didn't report it before, because most of the women I know are in, you know, circumstances of very high levels of privilege. The first thing they say is, I didn't want to hurt my parents. Hmm. It would have broken my dad's heart. Right. So many victims of sexual assault still want to remain anonymous, even within the Me Too movement, not because they are lying, you know, in part because they'll be socially shamed. But the one group that they don't want finding out about this incident is their parents, because it would kill their parents to find out that their child had been through this trauma. Right. So that's the caveat I want to add. I agree that it has shifted incentives. I agree that now men in positions of power have to sit up and take notice. I agree that especially among the men you and I know, right, we have a lot of friends in common. There's an ongoing conversation about, hey, have I been behaving appropriately? Did I make anyone uncomfortable? Uh, are the jokes I'm making truly funny or are they sexist and making the women around me uncomfortable? So I agree with you. There's definitely a recognition of that. But the society we in it has not changed and a lot of the social pressures of the relationships between parents and their children or the relationship between the most. There's one more little thing I want to add. Most women don't report sexual assault, especially in privileged circumstances. Also, because the moment we do it, that's all we'll ever be known for. And that's a genuine fear. Right. 
I want to be known as an economist working in this field and having published that paper. I don't want the first Google article about me always to be about how I complained about some sexual predator in a particular circumstance. And it always becomes about that. So just like the male sexual predators, if we Google them, we're always going to know that, oh, this guy did something shady in the past. The same is true for the victim also, right? The same thing. Now, every time you Google any one of these courageous women's names, I don't think it's their wonderful journalism that's going to pop up in the top hits. It's going to be this particular instance of them against MJ Akbar or them against Sajid Khan or something else. So they will be known for a very singular event that they may not want to be reminded of. And they frankly don't want to be known for that. So I want to add these caveats, not because I think men aren't changing, but just because social media reduces particular kinds of costs doesn't mean that we are now radically in a different world. I know that's not what you're saying, but I just want to add that caveat because I think we're all caught up in a wonderful cultural moment. And I think it's useful to understand the limitations of that cultural moment. No, that's a great point. But just to clarify what I was saying, I I absolutely don't want to minimize all the social pressures and costs that a woman bears. Uh, The only point I'm making is that earlier, if a woman, especially in elite circles, was, say, 1% likely to report something, that 1% might have gone up to 1.5%, which is still incredibly low because of the huge amount of pressures, and it's not 100%, but it's still 50% more than what it was before. Absolutely. And the reporting gets magnified now, right? Exactly. So 1.5% will get retweeted a thousand times. And people will take notice and they'll say things like, I can't believe that guy did that. I can't believe we have a sexual predator hiding in plain sight. I can't believe I went to that party with him. Right. Right? I know so many people right now who are having that moment. I can't believe I invited this person to my home or spent time with his family or this one I've played with his children. This is a moment that is really catching up with all of us. It definitely makes us sit up and take notice. And I think... The longer term the consequences are, the better it is, right? One fear I have is, which is now reducing with each passing day, the fear I had two weeks ago was this will all blow over. Why? Because the news cycle is so fickle, right? Something comes up today, we make a big deal about it. And two weeks later, we have gone back to making Rahul Gandhi jokes or something like that. Like everyone just forgets. But the longer term the consequences are, the better. So I saw this wonderful, I think it was a press release or something by 10 or 12 female directors who said they will not work with any of the uh, proven sexual offenders, right? That's a really clean stand. It doesn't matter whether you're a hairdresser or whether you're a director or an actor or a casting agent, we are simply not going to work with you. And that is the kind of long-term and the really high-cost economic consequence we need. We need these people to be sacked. We need their awards and invitations to be rescinded, right? We need some very long-term effects. I would love if publishers start dropping the book deals of all the people who have been accused who happen to be writers, right? Uh, Bollywood is already dropping. I think two directors have been dropped from projects and their names have been removed and things like that. That's the signal we need to send, not only that we believe the women, but that we will not just do like a fake inquiry internally. There are some real long term economic costs 
associated with no, this. There definitely are. For example, the Mami Film Festival, which would have started by the time you listen to this episode, but is now a week away, and which I'm very excited about, has dropped films by Rajat Kapoor and All India Bakchod after what happened. And you know, just going back to that press release by those twelve uh, women directors or whatever, I thought it was great. But I thought, where are the twelve male directors saying the same thing? That would also uh this is not a fight that women alone have to fight no actually it's the opposite it's the fight where women need men the most because no matter what we say about how empowered we are and how wonderful the me too movement is in most industries the men occupy the highest uh, sort of areas or levels of power and economic power and social status and until the men just come out and unilaterally call this out and distance themselves it's not going to work because what will happen is the female directors won't work with these people but they're only 12 versus the 300 male directors exactly right so these men may the sexual predators may still find employment in these bro dude clubs and green rooms where it's okay to have behaved badly so i completely agree with you it's not just a women's movement and frankly the women need the men more than ever before uh because so many of the decisions are taken by men and we need men to take a very clean stance on this even when it's their closest friends and family members and coworkers and impose some kind of distance they should be social pariahs Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And you know, we saw some of it. I mean, definitely, the Me Too movement has ended careers, but again, has ended careers of uh, some elite men in some contexts where women uh, found the courage and the means to complain. But like you said, it's not widespread enough. So, shifting from Me Too for the moment to just the wider criminal justice system and to the field of criminal e- economics, for example, you've just pointed out, for example. let's not talk about english speaking elites anymore but if you just look at the rape reporting rates in the country or the conviction rates and so on what are the sort of insights that you'd get from the work of someone like becker in terms of how can the criminal justice system be structured differently uh, to make more of a positive impact so uh, you know this is now speaking only about the criminal justice system there are three parts to it one is the process of reporting the second is the process of the actual trial and the third is the result of the trial which is the, the lack of conviction right um and i think on all three areas india is extremely poor and has been getting worse and becker tells us how to fix this problem so if you remember after the horrible nirbhaya event you know there was this huge amount of public outrage and how did we channelize that public outrage all the people called for death penalty for gang rapists right so that is only fixing one part of the gary becker equation which is increase the punishment so high that it acts as a deterrent but that's really hard to do in a state where there is very weak capacity and there are very low conviction rates and also sorry for so, interrupting you but would you agree that giving the death penalty for a rape is actually an incentive to murder because then the criminal after committing a rape might think that uh, you know might as well kill her because the penalty is the same and there's less chance of getting caught if i kill her yes so that's one problem on the margin perpetrator is better off being a rapist plus murderer than simply a rapist because the punishment is the same the second problem is the evidentiary burden is higher when we are giving someone the death penalty as it should be right so because you absolutely don't want any false positives 
in a death penalty situation. And that imposes an additional burden on the victim. So that is not what we want. What we want is to fix the other part of the Gary Becker equation, which is the probability of facing the cost or the probability of actually facing the legal punishment. So how do we improve that probability? We need to fix all three parts of the structure, which is the reporting structure, the trial structure, the conviction rate. And how do we fix that? The first part of it is just state capacity, right? Uh, India has about, I think, 130 policemen for every 100,000 people. Uh, I've only lived in two countries, India and the United States. The United States has above 300, right? So we have less than half of the number of policemen per 100,000 people than most other countries. So this is a really big problem because our police, uh, they have a terrible reputation, but we must understand that they're also terribly constrained. They don't have budgets, they don't have resources, and frankly, they simply don't have the manpower. So our police force needs to increase like twofold or threefold if we want the reporting procedure to be simpler. Right. So that's the number one thing. The other part of making the reporting procedure more at ease is, again, the moment you have manpower, you can also have greater division of labor and specialization within each police station. And then maybe if you're not that severely resource constrained, you could have someone who just deals with cases of sexual assault and violence or cases where uh, the victims are minors or something like that. Right. So that is the number one thing. And this just requires a very large amount of concerted political action. Uh, Right now, the political class is just not interested in expanding uh, the resources given to the police and really empowering the police. Why? Because the more police is in their control and the lesser uh, victims of crime have opportunities in the regular criminal justice system the greater is the status and the power of the politicians, right? Because now for everything, you need to go to the politician instead of going to the police. So there's actually a very perverse incentive structure. The other part of it is most politicians are criminals, right? In fact, if you read Milan Vesh's wonderful book, he talks about the incentives for criminals becoming politicians, which means they really don't want a functional police and they want the police to be under their control. So the second part of making reporting easier is we need to remove police from state level control and make it municipal or local level. I think that would make a really big difference. So you can have a state level police force, but we also need like a local level police force, which can much better deal with local circumstances and also have local representation, right? Women within the community may feel better if one of them is at the police station. And we see this a lot with the Panchayati Raj, right? Those districts where women became the Sarpanch, immediately the kinds of public goods tilted a little bit more in favor of the kinds of things that women need, such as water or like, you know, closeness to the closest water resource. So I think this is something that we need to think about structurally. The second part is the process of the trial and then the conviction rate. So the process of the trial, you know, India has these ridiculous pendency rates. They are worse than ever before. And uh, one of the things that stops the victims from complaining is you need to relive this for the next eight years or 10 years. Right. And that's just at the district court level. And then 
if the perpetrator appeals, even if you get a conviction, you need to relive it again in the high court and again in the Supreme Court. So light is nowhere visible or it's at the end of a very, very long tunnel. And the second part of the problem is that your life is kind of put on hold, just having to relive this problem over and over and over again. So the number one thing that victims of sexual assault need is you need a really quick and speedy trial, right? And it's not that victims of other crimes don't need that, but I think it's really particularly imperative to provide that uh, to victims of sexual assault, right? Now, anytime these things come up, the government typically says we'll create these fast track courts, fast track so much that they don't follow proper procedure. So even when they do get a conviction, everything is reversed at the high court and the Supreme Court level. So we don't need fast track courts. We need our current courts to function better, right? India has about a tenth of the judges that developed countries have, right? So per 100,000 people, I think India has about 12 judges or something like that. And uh, where I live right now, the United States has about 115 or 120. So it's literally tenfold, right? The aim may not be to reach American standards, but the aim could be to go reach halfway there. And so we need at least a fivefold increase in uh, judges, if not a tenfold increase in judges, right? Population has exploded. Reporting of crimes has increased over the years, but the number of judges and the court structure remains exactly the same. Um, you had a couple of wonderful episodes on this where you guys talked about, you know, the actual structure of the courts and how the dates are assigned and how slow that process is and how that really needs to change in India. So those are the kinds of structural things that are going to reduce the cost for the victim and increase the cost for the perpetrator because it increases the chances of conviction. The third part of it is the actual conviction rate. And this depends on evidence, right? In India, we don't have good method. So first of all, when, and now I'm going to talk only about rape, not sexual assault. The moment there is a rape, we don't have a very good procedure for collecting evidence and creating a rape kit, right? The moment victims actually go to the police station, first of all, they, so often they're just sent home, right? And they say, why don't you sleep on it and come back and report the crime in three days? Well, in three days, all the biological evidence is lost, right? Uh you need to record marks on the body or any kind of uh, other DNA material that might have been left behind. Everything is washed away when you ask victims to wait three, four days or you send victims away when they're reporting a crime or government hospitals are so overcrowded that are you going to save lives or are you going to make a rape kit, right? So the conviction depends so much on evidence and our evidence collection and the way we handle protected for a decade-long trial is so poor that virtually there is no hope. There's no hope of getting a conviction unless you've had 20 witnesses, right? And most rapes don't happen with 20 witnesses. Unfortunately, many of them do in rural India where upper caste men just think they can strip and rape a Dalit woman in the middle of the village. But most rapes don't take place like that, which means most rapes, you don't have photographic evidence. You don't have physical evidence. So the conviction rate is so strongly linked to that. And we need 
a bigger infrastructure of public goods and services which is dedicated to this so absent these three things i think it's very difficult to improve the probability of getting caught and convicted that's a really big problem the additional part associated with the cost on the perpetrator now of course a really long trial also hurts the perpetrator because it's a long trial there's legal fees but on the other hand it also absolves the perpetrator a little bit most men within the community or at the workplace are like yeah this is going to take 10 years we can't suspend him for 10 years right right so the moment the perpetrator gets bail or something they go back to work and that is not the outcome that we want so if there is a swift procedure it both protects the perpetrators who are false positives and have been wrongly accused but it also improves the chances of a social shaming system around it because you know there's media attention we can focus on something for 6 months we can't focus on something for 10 years even their social system the workplace their friends their family their alumni network no one has the stamina to hold that in their mind for 10 years and i think that's a really big problem of social cost being imposed on the perpetrators because of this but that i would say is how we should interpret gary becker's big insight we need to improve the probability of getting caught which means addressing all these different various aspects of reporting the actual trial and the conviction rate and the appeals process uh, such that perpetrators think twice on the margin when they commit a crime So let me just sort of try and summarize a very depressing picture that you painted. Uh the first thing that you pointed out was that look, you know, you'd kind of uh there are two things you typically address when you talk about the cost of a crime. One is a punishment and the other is a probability of getting punished. Now, as far as the quantum of punishment is concerned, India is not really much worse than most other developed countries and that's absolutely fine. We don't need to do anything there. The problem there is a probability of uh, getting punished which is very low on three different uh, margins one is reporting rates are extremely low and uh, the only thing that can solve this is higher state capacity like you pointed out india has about 130 policemen per 100000 people uh this is much less than half of say the usa which is more than 300 we need to increase state capacity what this would also do is that this would allow division of labor and within each police station even if policemen remain largely misogynist therefore uh, reflecting uh, our culture itself you can still have women cells within each uh, uh, police station where women might feel more comfortable to go and to be uh, uh, able to report and they might even be better trained the second margin besides the reporting the second second area is uh, the trial where you pointed out that cases can drag on for uh, uh, 10 years or more and uh, the only way around this again is uh, expanding state capacity having more judges who can uh, act uh, faster again we did have an episode on this and uh, that will be linked on the episode page of this a uh, very deep problem same kind of solution and the third is the conviction rates are very low which is partly because cases drag on for so long is partly because the police of which there are so few are already so overworked that they don't go through the proper procedures they're not trained to go through the procedures evidence is often not taken and when it is taken it's just lost or it degrades over time in different ways you know when the common solution to this entire mess would seem to be just increase state capacity as long as the rule of law is concerned but like you pointed out that requires political will and the incentives for that are not good either yes so having painted this terribly dismal picture i do have some glimmers of hope right now 
we've you and I have had this conversation many times before that whenever the state has weak capacity and hasn't provided the public goods we need, the private sector steps in. Right now, criminal justice is one of the areas where that's very difficult. Private sector can't easily step in, but there are margins on which it can. Right, if you observe now, so many places have security cameras. The probability of getting caught privately, right, by the security officer of the building or the mall or the workplace is much higher. That is a big deterrent to crime. Just the fact that there are video cameras everywhere at the workplace. So I know that is again a privilege of the rich people who work in the formal sector, but it's a really good start, right? Uh, the second is now post Vishakha, every firm in the formal sector was supposed to create a procedure and a committee to deal with sexual harassment and sexual assault. Now. The good thing about these committees is the standards for fair procedure are much lower than the criminal trial, and I say that that's a good thing because I don't want the state to relax the standards. I think it's a terrible idea to create fast track courts that compromise due process and things like that. But the state has a particular kind of monopoly over violence, and that we want to keep these checks and balances on the state. But I am much less worried if there is a false positive at a workplace, right? It's a he said, she said, and they believed her, and there's a false positive, and someone was wrongfully accused. Fair enough. I think it's a terrible thing, but it is not as terrible as when state courts do it. It's not seven years, which means exactly, which means I am a little bit more comfortable on the margin, right, with relaxing those standards, and second. I'm a little bit more optimistic about the results of that kind of procedure. Now, what is the consequence? You get fired, right? And you lose reputation. Now, that's a terrible thing if you're an innocent person. And while it's a terrible thing if you're an innocent person, it is still not as terrible as going to prison. But it's a wonderful thing if you're a woman in a workplace with not much power within the power structure of society and don't have the emotional. Financial or political connections to go through the entire criminal justice system process for ten, twelve, fifteen years to get a conviction. So I think swift delivery of justice, even if there are some false positives, I'm comfortable with as long as these are decentralized versions of the procedure, right? Not at the government level, but at the workplace level, at the association level. And again, there will be competition, right? All of these things are trial and error process. If there are some people who have gone too much on the other side, and there are too many false positives, men will think twice before they work at such a place. So what I mean is that I think this decentralized system is much quicker because of the trial and error process. And second, uh, the justice is swift. The consequences are immediate, and sometimes can also be long term. There are real economic consequences, and I think that is the answer to this very dismal picture that I paint at the state level. The problem with that answer is most of India works in the informal sector, and we've got to fix that and bring more of India's informal sector into the light so that all women can have this protection of an internal committee process. I agree with that, and beyond just the workplace context, if I might segue back to um, 
uh, Me Too for a moment. What you've seen in Me Too over the last, you know, since it broke, is that none of these people have yet been legally punished. The legal system hasn't even come into play. What is instead happening is that social sanctions have become swifter and more severe. Exactly. A lot of people have been sacked. A lot of people have had their careers ruined and thank goodness for that and and the way i saw a lot of it play out the me too movement and it's very fascinating to me as someone who's thought about the subject of spontaneous order is that this is spontaneous order in action it's not being the me too movement wasn't centrally planned from anywhere it kind of arose organically and there were you know different kinds of ebbs and flows and within the movement you had different people who gained credibility over a period of time and the way and it's still playing out you know in real time which is really fascinating and maybe a subject for us to talk about or write about at a different point in time. I think I've taken a lot of your time today, Shruti. So uh, before I um, sign off, um, you know, any uh, final words on the lessons of criminal economics for uh, the state of women in India? I think uh, the lessons are we need to impose a higher cost uh, a higher expected cost, which means we either improve the probability that the cost will be faced or the actual cost. The probability can be increased either by social shaming and shunning, reporting on social media, Me Too movement, or actually making the criminal justice system better. These are all available options for reform. And the social cost can be improved by both legal mechanisms in terms of what is the actual punishment for sexual assault, but also what is the social punishment for sexual assault, which is getting dropped from projects and losing your job and losing association membership and so on and so forth. So I think there is much to do on both these sides. The wonderful thing is this has started happening, but I think uh, the Me Too movement really, all of us need to be in it for the long haul, Right. Uh, this can't be just a cultural moment where we are fascinated by everything that's happening every single day and we're all in shock and awe that these predators existed in plain sight or that it's all like cracking open right now. That's sort of what's happening right now. The big thing we need is every firm, every building, every school, every temple trust, everybody needs to create some internal procedures so that we can actually prevent this in the future, right? The sad part of the Me Too movement is that there are this many victims and we are still at the tip of the iceberg. So in the future, we've got to stop having so many victims and that is possible only if we change the incentives, both in terms of probability of facing some kind of sanction and the actual sanctions. Shruti, that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Amit. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, do follow Shruti on Twitter at S Rajagopalan. You can follow me at Amit Verma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. And you can browse past episodes of The Scene and the Unseen at sceneunseen.in or thinkpragati.com. Thank you for listening.
Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of Paisa Paisa, the show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance, from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere. Robo advisory, startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa Pesa, we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money. Now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have. Did I just catch you on your way to work? Or did you end up pulling an all-nighter? Let me guess. You have a packed schedule for the day, the week, and probably the month and the year that's a lot for your mind to handle don't you think this buzzing chaos also brings tons of negative thoughts am i right try spinning that bottle in a positive direction with me chetna on the positively unlimited podcast every monday on ibm podcast it's time to change your life one alphabet at a time